0: Here we are again to study the Word of God together, and I'm glad that you're able to tune in as we look at what God has for us in His Word. I've chosen to continue with the theme that we started last week of Christians in Quarantine, kind of say, seeing this as a mini series here for a few weeks as we consider what God has for us during this unique time. I've entitled this message, Our Firm Foundation, and as we look at the foundation that we have in the Lord. As we begin, I want to remind you of the story of Jonah and a a certain snippet in that story in chapter 1. If you remember, Jonah the prophet received command from God to go to uh, Assyria and Nineveh and he refuses, gets on a ship headed for Tarshish and while he's on this boat, the Lord sends a wind and and, uh, a great storm hits the boat and the text says that, There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that that the ship threatened to break up. This storm was so great that the experienced sailors didn't know what to do. They were at their wits end and out of options. And so the text says that they begin calling out to each to their own gods. It says each cried out to his God. So here we see that each man had a God. Each one had a being in which he ultimately trusted for his safety, for his security, and for his hope and salvation. And so in that moment in in which his life was on the line, that man called out to his own God. And the point I want to draw from this is that the crisis of the storm brought to the surface the ultimate foundations upon which, which the hearts of those men trusted. And I believe this is a principle for all people at all times, and that is, that during a time of crisis, people fall back upon that which they trust. They reveal what they believe to be their God. Now, during biblical times, or particularly Old Testament times, it may have been easier to discern uh, people looking to their different gods simply because the worship of those gods were external. I mean, you think of whether you went to uh, the, a false temple, a temple for a false god, or whether you went to the temple of the living God, of Yahweh. It was very clear which god you served. Or you think of even uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and, and how they, uh, you either worshipped one altar with certain prophets, or you worshipped this altar and went through God's true prophet. I mean, it was very clear uh, which gods the people worshipped. And today it's no different, that people each worship their own God, but we like to think of ourselves here in the West as sophisticated, as religionless, the fact that we've pushed religion out of the public square, and therefore people don't necessarily have gods or idols like maybe those in the East or or other times in history had. But the reality is we haven't gotten rid of gods. We haven't gotten rid of idols. We've simply replaced the one true God with substitutes, with counterfeit gods. Now, today, those gods are, those idols are whatever that we internally look to, to trust and, 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 and to look to, to, to save us and to, and to give us happiness. This could be a certain politician or it could be the government in general as a god. It could be Wall Street or simply the almighty dollar that people look to. It could be one's youth, one's health, one's ingenuity, their wisdom, their Ability to figure out life hacks and, and make it at life. It could also be their physical pleasure and indulgence. Whatever it is, people in a time of crisis reveal their functional God. They turn there. They run there. They rely on their God for success. If only I serve this thing, if only if I give my allegiance here, then I will succeed. When they're in trouble, they petition their God for help. They turn to that thing again, looking for help, looking for hope, looking for happiness in a time of crisis. And they praise their God when it comes through for them, when it delivers what they were hoping for, and they also evangelize, in a sense, in helping others to see the success that they had and convince others to bow down and worship their God as well. Well, we as believers in Jesus Christ have an opportunity in time of crisis to also reveal who our God is. We can can reveal that our trust is in the Lord. It's in times of suffering that Christians cry out to the triune three in one. Now by saying that we as Christians trust in God, I I don't mean to say that that glibly and, and, and say that it's simply easy to do. Because in one sense, it's easy to say, but more difficult to carry out, particularly in the midst of pain and suffering. We say we trust God, but we also wonder what He's doing in the world. We say we trust God, but we would do things differently if it were up to us. We would have made different choices about the direction of our lives and the direction of the world. We say we trust God, but we frankly don't like the pain that we're experiencing, whether emotional or physical pain. We say we trust God, but the uncertainty of the future makes us uneasy or even fearful. And so we can see that even though we know at at a basic level that we need to trust God, sometimes our knowledge of God and His ways fall short of the need of the hour. We are like trees, and the depths of our roots will determine the strength of our trust. How far do our roots go down? You see, a tree with shallow roots will be blown over in the storm, but a tree with deep roots will weather the storm no matter how strong the wind is. The point is that our trust in God will only be as deep as our theology. Our trust in God will only be as deep as our theology. Therefore, we need deep theology so we can be deep believers. We need a robust, strong theology so that we might be able to withstand whatever comes our way. It's like steel rebar that gives strength in concrete under tension. So sound theology gives the believer strength under trials. We need that, that strong structure running through ourselves that we might stand strong theologically in the midst of whatever comes our way. And so this morning, I want us to survey the doctrines that we must uh, have in place in order to stand firm. We are not strong in ourselves. We are told to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, Ephesians 6.10. Therefore, we must know Him better so that we might stand strong in Him. So this morning, I want us to begin, this will be, we'll begin this week, we'll have to pick it up again next week as well. Overall, we're going to consider five theological foundation stones that we have in the Lord. This morning, we're only going to be able to look at the first two of them. Now, these theological foundation stones are are, are stones, are truths that are already found in our faith. In other words, they're already in your possession, believer. You don't have to go looking for them. But this morning, I want to shine the spotlight on these stones. I want, want you to see what is in the foundation underneath your feet so that you might have confidence, so that you might have joy in the Lord, and you might have strength to stand in whatever is in your life. And so I pray that as we look at these this morning, that you will grow in your delight of God and who He is and all that He's done and all that He will do. Now I know, church, that there are many of you that are going through difficult trials right now that you are in the hot water, that, that God has so chosen for you to walk through a difficult valley right now. But there's others of you that, that are not walking through that right now. And life seems okay. It's a little different. Yeah, this virus thing has messed some things up, but by and large, there's not too much else going on. But the reality is, is that we live in a fallen world and that we know that as a result of that, all of us will experience suffering at some time. And so I pray that as we look at these theological truths this morning, that for those of you walking through a dark valley right now, I pray this would minister to your soul in the situation you're at right this minute. And for those of you who may not be walking through suffering at this time, that this would prepare you for suffering. Because the time to consider uh, who God is and the foundation that we stand upon is not when we're in the midst of suffering, but we need to prepare for that for when it comes. Because often it's sudden, It's unexpected, and we have to fall back upon our faith suddenly. So let's delight in our God this morning as we first look at the first theological foundation stone, and that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. This is a phrase that we use a lot here at Foothill as we describe our trust in God that He is sovereign. And it's important that we continue to do that and maybe even do it more. Because a key cornerstone of our understanding of God is that he is sovereign. This means that he is the supreme Lord who rules over all. He's supreme. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he possesses supremacy over everything and everyone else. There is no one with greater power, with greater authority. He is the most high God. Particularly, there's three aspects of his sovereignty that I want us to think about. First is that his will is sovereign. His will or desires is sovereign. What he wills or desires comes to pass. And this, we could summarize simply as his plan for the world. What his plan is and what his plan has been from the beginning of time, from before uh, before the beginning of time, in, in eternity past, that is his will. That is what he desires. And he is able to carry that out. Psalm 115, verse 3 says that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. He simply does it. He doesn't have to give permission. His will is sovereign. We see also that his will is sovereign in Isaiah chapter 46. And I invite you to turn there, if you have a personal copy of God's word, to open that up and turn to Isaiah chapter 46. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. Isaiah 46 says this, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose." calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Friends, this passage couldn't be more clear. That God has spoken, he's decided, he knows what he wants to do and he will bring it to pass. He's purposed and he will do it. His will is sovereign. Whatever he decides to happen will happen. We see that he moves the hearts of kings to align with his will in Proverbs 21, verse 1. We see that he gives kingdoms and nations to those whom he wills. Daniel, chapter 4, verse 17. We see that he decides those whom he will save and those whom he will not save in Romans 9, verse 18. He decides how the members are arranged in the body of Christ. First Corinthians twelve, verse eighteen. Everything happens because God decides for it to happen. His will is sovereign, and it's clear in Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one, verse eleven. There is a, a foundational statement that we understand how God operates in this world. Ephesians 1, verse 11, says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God works all things, not some things, but all things according to the counsel of His will. God does all things for His sovereign will. And this will cannot be uh, fought against, cannot be thwarted. It will happen if he chooses it. As Job confessed in, in Job 42, verse 2, I know, Job says, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job knew that God, when God decided it and his will was determined upon it, that nothing could, could change the direction of that. Because his will is sovereign. And Paul simply asks in Romans 9, who can resist his will? And the implied answer is no one. No one can resist his will. So how is this truth that his will is sovereign strengthening for us in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering? Well, we can say that all that is taking place takes place because God has willed it to happen. God has a plan. And he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. This means, believer, that everything that's happening in your life right now is according to the will of God, is according to his plan. His will has not been thwarted. No one can resist his will. And therefore, what his plan has been is being carried out in your life right now. Take comfort in this. The circumstances of your life are not random. They are not out of control of God and they aren't just happening to you randomly. But they are all according to his plan because he works all things according to the counsel of his will. We can rest in the plan of our heavenly father. His will is sovereign. Secondly, we see that his authority is sovereign. His authority is sovereign. God has sovereign authority over all because he created everything. Genesis 1, 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He is the most high of all the earth. Psalm 83, verse 18. And therefore... Because he's the most high, because he created everything in this world and universe belongs to him, he has the authority to make decrees and to give commands. To make decrees and to give commands. And because of that, because he's the supreme authority, all men who have authority here on earth get get their authority from him. That's what Paul's argument is in Romans 13, verse 1, that all human earthly authorities that we have in our lives, in our societies, all are there because of God, and they gain their authority from the ultimate authority, and that's God. James 4, verse 12 says that there's only one lawgiver. That's God, the one who has the authority to give laws for all mankind. And therefore, he demands obedience from every person. And yet uh, humanity, rather, naturally rebels against God's authority. The nations rage against God, Psalm 2 says, because we don't like having anyone tell us what to do. And we all know this by seeing it in our own children, right? This resistance to authority, this resistance to someone telling us what to do. We all want instinctively to say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do things my own way. That is our instinct as sinners. And particularly here in America or here in the West where individual freedoms have been been enshrined into law, and and, and rightly so. Freedom is, is beautiful and great and what God intends for mankind. But our freedoms, when combined with the heart that simply wants to do whatever it wants, when you take personal freedom that is so unique in human history that we have, which is amazing, but, but you combine that with a sinful heart that simply wants to do whatever it wants to do, whatever it pleases, a will and a heart that wants to be sovereign, then you have a situation in our country where people believe that they're, a, they're the authority for their life and they can ultimately make the decision for however they want to live. And so God's authority is scoffed at. God's authority is rejected because the unbelieving heart hates God and his rule. But let's be clear. Man does not hate God's authority because God's authority is evil or bad in any way. His authority is grounded on the most perfect principles. It is the purest, the most beautiful, the most loving, gracious kind of authority that can be found anywhere. Psalm 97, verse 2, states, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. He does all that He does, established upon His own character of righteousness and justice. He does what is right all of the time. His laws are right all of the time. And so, because God is righteous in all that he does, he's just in all that he does, he has, no one has a greater right to reign than the Lord. We don't want to see anyone else on the throne. Only God is perfect. Only God is holy. Only he will reign with righteousness. But you see, a righteous God reigning with all authority is actually not good news for, sin, for sinful humanity. Because if, he's, if there's a lawgiver and he's perfectly just, then justice is in the truest sense, means that you and I deserve to die for our sins. Romans 6.23 makes that clear. The wages of sin is death. You and I each deserve the condemnation and the wrath of Almighty Holy God for our sin. That is true justice. God would be completely just if he were to send every single human being who ever lived to hell for their sins. Because they have sinned, and they rightly, justly deserve that condemnation. But friends, as we know, Jesus has changed everything. Because the Son of God came and gave his life as a ransom for many, sinners like you and me are able to be saved from the wrath of God. Jesus is called in, in 1 John chapter 2, the propitiation for our sins. That means he's the wrath bearer for our sins. He stood in our place there upon the cross as he was crucified, and he, he took the wrath of God upon himself, and God poured out the cup of his wrath upon his own son, and Jesus drank it to the last drop for us so that we don't have to experience any of God's wrath. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we have been set free from condemnation into life, new life in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. And we are now in right relationship with the lawgiver. We are reconciled to God. And now being reconciled to God, we can happily submit under his authority. His good, righteous authority is now a beautiful thing to us. It's a place of rest and safety. It's a place of worship. And so this should strengthen our heart. As we fear the Lord above all authorities and and powers, our allegiance belongs to him, and we know that our lives are happily submitted to him. But not only do we see that his will is sovereign and his authority is sovereign, but we see his power is sovereign. His power is sovereign. God has the authority and freedom to will anything he wants. He also has the unlimited power to carry out that will. In other words, he's not just sitting back and able to make a decision and, and, and have the authority to, to, to call people to live a certain way, but he has the power to carry out his will. You maybe have heard the attribute of God that he is omnipotent. This means simply means that God has all power. Omni, meaning all potent power, he has all power. His power as we know, is demonstrated even from the very first page of Scripture where God simply speaks and everything came into existence. He said, let there be light and there was light. And as we see even demonstrated from that first page of Scripture and we see it demonstrated all the way through to the last page. When God works, He does it effortlessly. It requires no labor, no work. He does it completely and He never does anything half- way. He does it all the way and and absolutely completely to the nth degree. And he does it flawlessly. There's no error. There's no issues with it or problems. It's absolutely flawless. He can carry out his desires completely flawlessly and effortlessly. And this is how God works all the time. (laughs) I mean, he's able to do whatever he wants. He can do it easily without any labor or work. And he can do them directly, as in a a, a direct miracle, such as creation was. Or he can do it through means, uh, meaning he can heal through a doctor's or through medicine. Or he can bring about the punishment of Israel through the Babylonians. He can use means to bring about his will and his purpose. But he can choose. He can decide. It's up to him. He does as he pleases. And as we said, there's no power that can resist him. His power is unlimited. His power is unresisted. And he simply does what he wants as it's combined with his will and his authority. And so we can rejoice in this power because, as the Puritan Stephen Charnock said, it is a power in the hands of an indulgent father, not a hard-hearted tyrant. You see, we in our own day are so... Repulsed by, by unlimited authority and by this thought that, that someone has ultimate control over our lives, because frankly, we don't trust another person to have that kind of rule and reign over us. And that's because we're all sinners at heart. But see, with God, it's different. He is not a hard-hearted tyrant. He is a benevolent father. And when you give that kind of power to a benevolent father, then we can rest, we can rejoice, and we can be happy that God has this kind of power. And so as we talk about these, this attribute of God, of God's sovereignty, it should lead us to worship. The theologian Douglas Kelly said this, he said, the majestic character of the King of kings and Lord of lords means that nothing can be more uplifting and beautiful than to know that he is in charge of all That can ever happen. Let me read that again. The majestic character of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords means that nothing can be more uplifting and beautiful than to know that he is in charge of all that can ever happen. The one who is in charge of your life and of mine and of this world is the majestic King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No one more beautiful. There is no one like him. And so, in trying times, in times of suffering, in times of trial. The sovereignty of God is a, a foundation stone that we must stand upon, that we can know that he is dependable, that he is there, that he is in charge, that there's not one molecule outside of his control because he reigns and rules over all. But as we talk about God's sovereign power, we are led directly into the second theological foundation stone for us this morning, and and that is the providence of God. So we've looked at the sovereignty of God, and here next is the providence of God, two doctrines that are close together, uh, directly related to one another, but have slight differences in emphasis. If we can describe it maybe this way, if the sovereignty of God states the fact of God's power, authority, and will, then his providence is the doctrine that relates him enacting all of those. So, sovereignty of God means he has all authority, he has the sovereign will, he has the sovereign authority, and then his providence means he he uses those, he, 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 he takes those attributes and he works them out within his creation. The providence of God is his activity in the created world. In other words, providence is God's sovereignty in action. Providence is God's sovereignty in action. To help us to further define the providence of God, I want to read one of the questions out of the Heidelberg Catechism. This catechism was written in the 16th century spilling out of the Reformation time. And it asks and answers the question in question 26 this way. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth And all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. By his fatherly hand. God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all its creatures, and so governs them that all things come to us, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Now, this definition highlights God's providence as His active, fatherly power coursing through the world. It says His almighty and ever-present power. It's not just almighty somewhere up there in the heavens, but it's almighty and it's ever-present. It's at work. It's taken off the shelf, as it were. And this power, the catechism highlights, is doing two things. It's sustaining And it's governing. It's sustaining and it's governing. And we'll look briefly at these two activities of God's providence from the Scriptures. First, He sustains all things. When we talk about the providence of God, we're saying, first of all, that God sustains everything that is on this earth. And of course, it only makes sense that because God created the world that he should also sustain and uphold it. uh, Paul says this in Acts 17. In fact, I invite you to turn there. Acts 17. He's speaking the Areopagus in Athens. Acts 17, verse 24. As he's evangelizing and witnessing to that group of pagans there in Athens, he says this, he says, "...the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." Paul simply asserted that the Almighty God, the one and true God, is Lord of heaven and earth because he made heaven and earth. And he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. But this, the Bible describes this reality everywhere, that, that mankind and the earth and creatures and everything finds its, its sustaining existence in God. We see this in Psalm 104. Turn to to Psalm 104. The psalmist saw this as a, a cause for praise. God's sustaining work in his world. Psalm 104. Verses 10 through 15. He says... You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And the, the psalmist goes on saying that all these things are from the Lord. Look in verse 27, he says, These all look to you, saying that all creatures look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. And when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Friends, this psalm couldn't be more clear. That everything that happens in this earth and all the creatures that find life on this planet, whether it be man or beast, finds its existence and finds its sustaining energy and life from the hand of God. All the food given to animals comes from the Lord. He opens His hand and gives it to them, the psalmist says. All of it is flowing from the generosity of God as He sustains His creation. This is not a world that simply runs on natural processes. This is not a world that simply runs off of random events in which things just happen to take place so that creatures figure out how to survive. No, this is a world created by the triune God. It's a world that's sustained by the triune God. And therefore, the triune God is deserving of all praise and honor and glory for His sustaining providence in this this world. We see this Also described in Psalm 145. Turn a few pages to the right to Psalm 145. The psalmist here, David, says in verses 15 through 17, Psalm 145, verse 15, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Friends, God's sustained providence of this earth flows out of his kindness, flows out of his righteousness, that he does what is right, he does what is good, and he does what is kind. He is a benevolent creator. He's the giver of all good things. And because of his generosity, because of his goodness, he is deserving of. Of all praise. We see here in this same psalm, Psalm 145, verse 8, the psalmist described the the character of this God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. I believe this is a call for the believers to praise God for his sustaining providence in this world, for his uh, kind and generous, benevolent character. As the psalmist gave, uh, described, the Lord is gracious and merciful, and his mercy is over all that he has made. This should prompt praise in the believer. But as we look at God's sustaining providence, we also need to recognize that, that the, 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 the providence of God is, is also Trinitarian and very Christ-centered. I want you to r- remind you of a couple passages in the New Testament that describe Jesus sustaining this earth. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. Paul makes this explicit, that Jesus not only helped create this world, but he also upholds it. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him, being Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, verse 17, is before all things. And get this, in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Jesus Is holding together this universe. We see that repeated in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. The author of Hebrews says that in Jesus, through Jesus, God created the world. He says, Verse 3, that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And get this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, the almighty resurrected Lord, upholds, he carries the universe by the word of his power. He doesn't have to lift a finger for him to hold this universe. We must be amazed at the power of God exhibited through the sun as he carries this world. And we know the Spirit was involved in creation, Genesis 1, verse 2, and he gives life to everything on this planet as well. The triune God is deeply involved in sustaining this world. He's constantly working to sustain this universe. Now this goes flies in the face of a, do- of a doctrine and a theory sometimes called deism. And I don't think it is so much uh, a formal theology that you're going to encounter today, but it's definitely some that I think uh, many uh, uh, unthinkingly adopt. Deism teaches the fact that God simply created this world and then walked away from it and left it to kind of run on its own. It's been described as a, God as a divine watchmaker and he, 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 he creates this watch or clock with all the intricate parts for it to work just perfectly and then he winds it up and then he sets it and now it's just been ticking and running away with, without any of his personal involvement in the world. But friends, the, that flies in the face of the scriptures. God is intimately involved. He didn't just create something and set it aside to run on its own. He is daily, moment by moment, involved not just with people who are made in His image, but with creatures, with animals. He gives food to the animals. (laughs) Jesus says that the Father knows every sparrow that falls from the sky. Every single small little bird as representative of the reality that God knows everything that takes place with every single creature, animal, molecule upon this planet. God is intimately involved in His creation. And He sustains it. He upholds it. It would fall apart. Everything would fly to bits if God were to remove His sustaining grace and sustaining care. Our secular enlightened age would like to think that because this world runs upon natural laws and and everything just kind of hums along based upon how these things are all set up. But friends, it's not a secular universe. It's a... It's a universe set up by the Divine Lord, the Sovereign Lord, who is providentially working and sustaining and upholding you in this very moment, causing your your heart to beat and your lungs to breathe for every single second and moment that He wants them to function. He sustains our lives. But on top of His sustaining all things, God also governs or controls all things. So under the umbrella of God's providence, we see that He sustains all things and we also see that He governs or controls all things. Again, as creator, God has the right to control everything that He made. As one Puritan put it, no one is so fit to govern the world as He who made it. He created it and so now He can govern it and control it. It just makes sense. It's it's like a theologian who, from, from the 5th century who keenly noted that God has not left his creation like a boat without a captain to steer it, so that it's blown about by the wind and broken upon the rocks. God created it, he made it, he set that boat to sail, and he is going to control it and be at the helm steering it carefully to precisely the goal that he wants. And we know, as we talked about last week, the goal of all things is for his glory. That's why he made us. That's why he made everything. That's why he does everything that he does is for his name's sake. And so all that we're going to talk about in terms of God governing and controlling within his creation is all for that ultimate purpose for from him and to him and through him are all things. To to God's glory is the reason he does everything. And so God has supreme control over his creation There's no realm or part of creation that falls outside of his control. It's as the theologian Abraham Kuyper said in the 19th century that there is not one square inch in this created realm under which Christ does not cry, mine. He owns it all and he can control it all. And the Bible is explicitly clear about this. First we see that he controls the weather. He controls the weather. We read in Psalm 147, verse 16 through 18. I've got verses here to describe this. You're probably just going to have to write them down. We don't have time to turn to them. But Psalm 147, verses 16 through 18. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down His crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before His cold? He sends out His word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. God controls the weather. He controls plants and animals. Think about the story of Jonah that we mentioned at the beginning. He, God sends a giant fish to come and swallow Jonah and then spew him back out again. God was in total control to enable that to happen, much less to create that creature. And God, then we see at the end of the book of Jonah, God controlling a plant. He caused a plant to grow up and cover Jonah with shade, and then he caused that plant to shrivel up. That's just one small example of how God is in control of the natural world. He controls it. He can make it happen. God's in control of the nations of mankind. Daniel 4, verse 17 says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He gives nations, he impuses, puts, puts leaders in those nations whom, uh, that which he wills, that which he chooses. He doesn't just have a choice for a leader of a nation or choice for the boundaries of a nation and then he's left being powerless, unable to control to make it happen. No, if he decides something and wants it to happen, he providentially controls it to make it happen. We see that with Israel, right? That's the whole story of the Old Testament. God chose a nation, chose a piece of land for that nation, and made it happen to bring them to that land. But we also see, in conjunction with this, that God is in control of the events of every human life. God is in control of the events of every human life. Just think about the birth and death of every single human. That is in the sovereign control of God. No one brings that about apart from His control. And Hannah in, in the Old Testament understood this. She said in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. God is sovereign. She knew that God was sovereign over all people at all times, that the, the ultimate estate of where people were, high, low, alive, or dead, was all in the sovereign hand of God, and he made that choice, and he would bring that about. And It's the same for you and me. God decides, and God is in control of our birth and our death. We didn't decide what century to be born in. We didn't decide what family to be born in. What country to be born in? All of this was up to the sovereign choice of God. He is in control, and so if God is in control of our birth and He's in control of our death, it makes sense that He was be in control of everything in between. Which is why we must make plans in our lives, in humble recognition, as James says in James four verse fifteen, that we do everything. If the Lord wills, we say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Because everything is according to His will, and it will only happen if it's His will. We can try to make something happen all that we want, but we recognize that we're not in control. We've all had to learn that at some point. Right, That we're, we're trying to make a, a business succeed, or, or maybe we're trying to get a girl to like us, or whatever the circumstance is, and we realize it's outside of our control. We can do all that we can, but ultimately the results are in God's hand because He is sovereign, and He is the one who's providentially working. The Bible is clear that the Lord directs human hearts. In other words, that He can change hearts. We see this in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And the, and the imagery, the, the word of a stream of water there is really like an aqueduct, a, a constructed stream in which you're directing the water to go exactly where you want it to go. And the argument is that if the king's heart is a stream in the hand of the Lord, then certainly all of us peasants underneath the king... Uh, he can control us as well. If he can control the most powerful human, he can control the, the least powerful human as well. And the reality is, is he can control each one of our hearts to so do exactly as he wants. But none of this tramples upon our decision-making. None of us are pure robots. None of us are puppets in the hand of the Lord in which we want to do one thing, but God is forcing us to do something else. He works within the means of, the, of us as creatures so that we make free choices and decisions as we weigh pros and cons. And yet through all of those free choices, God works out his will. And the fact that God God can work and change and control human hearts is frankly the reason that we pray to him for ourselves and for our family members. We want God to turn our hearts away from our sin and to himself. And by praying that kind of prayer, we recognize that the control of our own hearts is outside of us. We need God to do it. In order for God to save our family member that we, we, we know is lost, we pray that God would turn that person's heart. That's why we pray for the salvation of the lost, is because God has control over the hearts of the lost. Do you see that if we, if we, if we lose the, the sovereignty and the providence of God and His ability to control in this world, then we really strip out all ability and all reason to pray. God is in control also of demons. Look to the ministry of Jesus. He cast the demons into the herd of pigs. And the last point that I want to mention that God's in control of is that God's in control of man's sin. And this, we don't have time to fully untangle and fully explore this morning. And I invite you that if you haven't thought long and hard and studied the scriptures on this matter to do this. But the reality is, is that the Bible teaches, is that God is in control of the sin of mankind. But by saying that, we must assert, first and foremost, that God does not cause sin. Hear me again. God does not cause sin. James chapter 1, verse 13 is very clear. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1.5. God is perfectly holy and pure and is not tainted by sin in any way. But God's providence includes the control of human sin. And again, we don't have the the time to dive into the intricacies nor to answer all the philosophical questions that come from this. There's whole books written on this that are, are helpful. But... As difficult as it is to grasp, we need to, I want to simplify it for us this morning to realize that we need to simply affirm these two facts because the Bible affirms these two facts. The number one, as we just said, God's, God does not cause sin and is therefore is not guilty of any sin. He cannot be blamed for any sin that takes place. That's the first truth we must affirm. God does not cause sin. Secondly, though, God is in control of sin. In other words, there is no sin, there is no rebellion, there is nothing that a man can do that falls outside of God's jurisdiction. There is not some, some place where man begins to rebel and then they step outside of God's control and God goes, ah, he just, I just missed him. I can't, I can't control him. I, I, I don't have any control over that guy. He's a, he's a free-ranging uh, person. No, God is in control of everything, every molecule. It's certainly a conundrum. As we try to think about it, it's a mystery. How, how can God not cause sin, not be guilty of sin, and yet be control of, of man's sin? It's a mystery, beloved, that we must stand back and be in awe of and simply trust because the Bible teaches both things. But people, in trying to solve, and trying to untangle this knot, have gone in wrong directions. They've tried to argue that God does not have control over human sin. They want to say that man is completely free, that they are outside of his jurisdiction, and God simply sits back as a spectator, wringing his hands, hoping that these people turn to him and that they see how beautiful he is, that they see his truth, and that they're convinced that they need to follow him. But do you recognize how pitiful this makes God? How powerless he is? to sit back as a spectator upon these creatures that he made and that are now rebelling against him? No, God God is not a God sitting back hoping and praying and thinking that just hopes that these sinners would come to him and that the sin would would hopefully stop. No, God is in complete control. And to help you see this from the Bible, I want to just give you two quick examples. Quick examples that I believe all of you are familiar with the first from the old testament second from the new first joseph genesis many chapters tells the story of joseph and you see that fortune or or uh, um fortune seems to be turning against him and he He keeps having bad luck as things keep getting worse and worse for him. And yet he continues to trust God. And at the very end of his story, he's before his brothers, his brothers who initially sold him into slavery. And Joseph declares, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that he would save many lives. Friends, the story of Joseph is one huge example, one huge story for us, that even though people make free choices and sin in very deliberate and direct and evil ways, God has not lost control. And and amazingly, in his almighty power, can take those choices and turn them for his purposes, for his glory, and bring about good. Bring about good. The second example from the New Testament, the greatest example of all of time, is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ, which is the greatest evil to ever exist, the greatest evil event to ever happen, and yet that event was not outside of God's control, beloved. God was intimately involved. In fact, the scriptures tell us that God brought it about, and yet Pontius Pilate and the Jews are the ones responsible for putting him on the cross. I want you to see this. Turn to Acts, the book of Acts. The apostles had no problem with God being in ultimate control of all things, and yet people being responsible for their own sin. It comes out twice here in the early uh, chapters of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we see it first. Acts 2, verse 23, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says this: this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see the conjoined together here? That the, these men sinned. They're lawless. They 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 put Jesus upon the cross and they killed him, they crucified him. And yet. This didn't take God by surprise. This was not outside of his dominion or his control. This was right inside of what he had been planning from all of eternity, according to the definite foreknowledge of God. God didn't just know it was going to happen. It was his, his predetermined plan for it to happen. God planned the cross through the sinful actions of man. Again, a mystery. But we've got to hold that tension. We've got to be in awe at that mystery. Second passage here in Acts, Acts 4. Acts, that was Acts 2. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 27. These are Christ, early Christians are praying to God, and they say this. They say, for truly, Acts 4, verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy s- servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So, pause right there. Verse 27 describes all these people who had come up against Jesus. These people were all there to sin against Jesus. Again, the worst sin to ever take place. But verse 28, to do whatever your hand, Lord, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. Again, you can't get any clearer than this. Sinners purposing to do what they want to do, and yet God, through all of that, working Out his purpose and his plan and as we know through the cross of christ god through the greatest evil brought about the greatest good if the cross stands as the greatest example of god being able to use the greatest evil for the greatest good then it it it, the argument from the greater to the lesser is that if he can do that then that's what he can do through any of the smaller evils that we encounter through anything else that takes place in all of human history, God is in control, bringing about his purposes for his glory. Friends, if man's sin was outside of God's control, then this world would be in a free fall because man has been sinning since the beginning. And there'd be so many choices, so many things that are outside of his control, and God is simply back wringing his hands, hoping that that we don't run this thing into the ground. But the reality is, is that God is in control, preserving this, keeping our sin from destroying nations, from destroying families, from destroying lives as much as it could. God is in control. God is providentially working all things for his glory and for our good. And so I want to close this morning by simply applying these two theological stones. We've got God's sovereignty and God's providence. Two deep and wonderful truths about God that the scriptures make clear. What does that do for us? We've already... We've already hinted at some of these along the way. What does it mean for us? Why do we need these, these, uh, this strength, the skeletal structure of God's character in us for us to withstand and, and stand strong in the midst of suffering, in the midst of crisis? Because number one, it means that we can trust His promises. No one can thwart God's promises. He will fulfill them for us. And so we can trust him. You can trust God to save you, beloved. You can trust God to give you peace. You can trust God to care for you. You can trust God to be with you through your trials. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, and you can trust him for that. You can believe the word of God in Scripture. Now, suffering certainly tests our faith. As the clouds of suffering come over us, We can begin to doubt whether God is truly there and whether he's going to fulfill his promises to us. But we must not doubt in the darkness what we knew in the light. To know that God is there. God is in control. God is working for our good. We can trust his promises. The second thing that these foundation stones do for us in suffering is that it means that we don't have to worry about the future. We do not have to worry about the future. Why? Why? Because number one, he has a plan for us. His will is sovereign. And secondly, that plan's always good. We don't have to doubt whether that plan is going to somehow work some sort of evil for us or some sort of something bad for us. His will is determined from before the foundation of the world. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He's working out his plan in this world and in our lives. And this is a plan to bless us. Now, a verse that's often misquoted is Jeremiah 29, 11, but I believe it holds a truth for us as believers in Christ. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That that was originally given to Israel, that God was going to bring Israel back into the land. And that was true for them. But, but as believers in Christ, we know that in one sense, God has the same plan for us. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. The rest of the Bible affirms that God has good plans for us. And that means he has good plans for you. Friend, do you trust and know that God has a good plan for you? that the events going on in your life are not God's second best for you but are his 100% best and that it's 100% good for you. It's easy to believe that God has a good plan for our lives when we're going through prosperity. It's difficult when we're going through adversity. It's easier to believe that God's plan is best when the sun is shining than when the hurricane of suffering hits. But we must trust God And believe what it says in Psalm 84, verse 11, that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Friend, hold to that, cling to that. No good thing does he withhold. He's not holding back a good thing for you. As one Puritan writer commented on this verse said, no good man ever lacked anything that was good for him. I may lack a thing which is good, but not that which is good for me. You see, God knows what is good for you. And he will do exactly what he believes is, is right and good. Do you believe that God has your best interest in mind? Do you trust him for that? We can do that even in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances. A man named William Googe was a pastor in London in the 16th and 17th centuries. And he pastored during a time in which the bubonic plague, the, the Black Death, was going through and ravaging cities in Europe. And he was asked, why Christians also succumb to the disease? Why, why is it that Christians are not protected from the Black Death? And he answered that it may be God's will to do good to his children by having them pass away by this plague. He said this, he said, yea, what believer would not die of the plague if his wise father seeth it to be the best for him to die of the disease. Friends, that is a belief in the sovereignty and providence of God that that sees us through trials to believe that God does his best for us no matter what may come, even if it costs us our life because our life, our body is not the most valuable. It is our soul before the Lord and we must fear him and trust him Because you see, death for an unbeliever is entrance into hell and punishment and wrath and torment, but death for the believer is simply entrance into glory. The the suffering that we experience here is the worst we'll ever experience, believer. The best is yet to come. Imagine uh, living in a world in which you believe there was no purpose, that there was everything was random that it would be cause of great despair and great anxiety but we don't have to fear we can trust the lord pray to him depend upon him and he will be with us thirdly we can pray boldly again we said this already that if god's not powerful and if god can't act and god can't control people then why pray because he's powerless he's not able to accomplish those prayers and so we can pray boldly because God has ultimate authority, ultimate power, and he can work it out through his providence. And fourth and lastly, we can repent of our rebellion. Isn't it true that when difficulties come our way, that complaint and, uh, and ungratitude is quickly to rise in our hearts? And it's a common human sin. We don't like what comes our way. We don't like uncomfortable circumstances. We don't like our lives out of control. And yet we must examine our hearts and see that we are not complaining, that we're not grumbling against the Lord. We must humble ourselves before the Lord. We, as one Puritan said, we may groan to God, but we must not grumble against God. We can groan in our prayers to God, but we must not grumble in our prayers against God. We must learn to sit happily under his his providential care. I end this morning by simply reading to you a hymn written by a man named William Cooper. Look, Look him up, wonderful, wonderful story. But he wrote this hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way a hymn highlighting the providence of God that sometimes we don't understand and is a mystery to us, but we can still trust him in the midst of that mystery. He writes this, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Friends, may we trust in God, the sovereign God who providentially works in our lives, and know that he has our best. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we ask simply that you would please help us this morning to trust you, to trust you at all times and in all ways, no matter what comes our way, no matter what suffering, no matter what difficulty, may we look to you and groan in our hearts and cry out to you, asking that you would please work in our hearts and in our lives, that we may cling to you in the midst of the storm. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May God use his truth to bless you this morning.